So a little commercial again for the uh, services today. Today our text could not be better connected to the class because both Alex and Joe are preaching on Hebrews 5:12 through 6:11, which is that text in which the writer of Hebrews urges people to not lay again the foundation of salvation and just keep getting the milk of the gospel, but to move on to solid food as they develop a discernment and the ability to live out the Christian faith. Uh, so that today, uh, what we do here in this class uh, in Proverbs is to try to empower people to be able to live out in a deeper way that which you already believe, the Christian faith. And uh, Kathy's going to, I wish you could all be on the front row today because when I do what I'm about to do, Kathy always begins to roll her eyes because I cannot always resist the temptation to take people about three steps deeper than I really should try to do. Uh, but today's one of the days when I have to start out with a little word to you because our lesson today is on friendship. That's what we're going to be talking about. And you might ask yourself, why would friendship take up an entire week of a study on wisdom literature? Why, would, why in the world would anybody do that? And the answer has to do with the fact that friendship turns out to be one of the most crucial aspects of the Christian life. It is fundamental. And so I'm just going to come over here because the first point today is not in the reading of the week. It's one I just want to make to you is that it is not surprising that friendship is necessary for the Christian life because we serve a God who exists in relationship. We serve a God who exists Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a relationship of love and it is not surprising that such a God would make a universe that is built for love. Now there's a statement. I'll make it again. God made a universe built for love. Our world is built for love. You might say, well, that sounds odd to me. But it's one of those things that because most of us grew up uh, in, in the secular world that we live in, uh, under the impact of modern science, we think of the world intuitively as made up of matter and force, don't we? There's matter and there's force. And these two things are put together and they collide and they make things happen. And we can harness the energy of the universe as we make steam engines initially and as we make gas engines, as we do are able to industrialize the world and manipulate God's creation. But since the beginning of the 20th century, we've actually known that that is not the way the world is. That is not the way the world is. All that exists as matter is simply another form of energy. All that exists as matter, Albert Einstein's had that intuition, E equals MC squared. All this table, the chairs, this building, it's all just a form of energy. In the summertime, I get to walk through Lake, by Lake Leary every day, and I remind myself every morning there is enough energy stored in Lake Erie to destroy our solar system. That much energy is just stored in the water of Lake Erie. 
Uh, there's enough energy stored in your body uh, to do unbelievable things. Well, uh, it wasn't long after that that they made a second discovery that's even more surprising than the first, and that is that the energy itself is made up of little quanta of waves, and those quanta of waves actually are all related. There's actually all related. Uh, so there's a, a phenomena that if you take a subatomic particle and you hit it with another subatomic particle and you split them, once it, at the either end of the universe, if you change the spin of one, the change of the other automatically changes. That defies, by the way, one rule. No signal can travel faster than the, the speed of light. So the implication is they're not really separated. Now, I want to go into this because you see we're not really separated as human beings. We just think we are. <laughs> we are not separated. So let's begin our, our class today by someone reading for me. Uh, if you will, we're going to skip the last one. The thing. On page 40, I forgot to ask my big question. I'll have to go back and do that before this is over. Page 40, read us the Bible verse, Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and breaks out against all sound judgment. That, by the way, is very hard to translate from the original Hebrew. Some texts have it, the strange man breaks out against all desire. So how many of you know someone who just locked himself up uh, away from the rest of the world? Anybody know? Y'all know someone like that? Yeah. <laughs> what happens? That, that picture this week of him sitting at one end of the table and 30 yards forward, there's an, about three people trying to talk to him. Uh, what happens when a person cuts themselves up from other people? What happens? <laughs> they can get disillusioned, they can get paranoid. Howard Hughes is a great example of a person who cut himself from everybody. One thing I've noticed, I noticed when my father died and my mother no longer had anyone in the house besides herself, is when you have no one in the house but yourself, anything you think is right, right? <laughs> uh, because there's no one to say, I'm not sure we should do that. Uh, and so we begin to listen to our own voice and we just begin to go, don't we? in whatever path we think happens to be right. Uh, and so when we isolate ourselves, we almost inevitably break out against sound judgment. We do something foolish. So what then does a wise person do? What does a wise person do? Stay in community. A wise person builds relationships, builds relationships in their family, builds relationships in their church, builds relationship in their community to avoid the danger of isolation. And we're not going to talk about this, but there's one other danger that we all need to be concerned about, and I, I called it the impact of twisted relationships. Uh, we talked last week, what are the two paths? 
the path of righteousness, the path of wickedness, the path of light, the path of darkness. In the first two chapters of Proverbs, there's a long, both chapters, there's a long series where the warning is given by the fatherly voice to not have relationships with evil people <laughs> because they'll lead you astray. So did anybody have a comment they wanted to make about the first day? So let's go to the second day. So someone read me Proverbs 1.10. So what's the advice here? What's the advice here? Don't join forces with people who will lead you astray into, into violence. That particular passage is going to talk about violence and dishonest behavior uh, and evil. But other passages in Proverbs are going to talk about the others. So the question for the day which I hope some of you did. If you didn't do this, I want to just encourage you to do this. And at the end, I'm going to tell you why. That's something I do once a year. But it says, make a list of your friends and the people you really admire. Do they deserve your friendship and admiration? Why or why not? If you could turn to page 43 before the end of the next week and make a list of the people that are most important in your life, your closest friends. And what do you think you're going to discover about those people? They were probably a good influence. What else? Yeah. They probably have a strong faith. As Christians, a lot of my list is made up of people like that. What else will they be? They'll probably be support people who have supported you in times of, of hard, hard times, struggle. So if you will turn and do that, make that list, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Um, now, the second question is you might ask yourself, uh, are there any relationships I have that maybe aren't the best relationships? We're a pretty mature group here so we're past that stage but I think the young we all know that sometimes when we were young we may have had friends that really led us in a direction that we probably didn't want to be uh, we may have had friends that led us into business deals that we probably regret we were in to, in the first place uh, part of maturing is to learn that little lesson about what can happen if you have the wrong partners uh, so that it's good for us to think about that. It's also good for us to help our children and our grandchildren think about that. Because we all know, what do bad friends do? They just cause trouble. They do. They just cause trouble. Um, now, somebody read. Uh, we're just, we've dealt with this one a little bit. But um, somebody read uh, on page 44, Proverbs 5.20. That happens to be... Uh, my paraphrase, just because it was too long to get in the slot. Did anybody uh, read the Proverbs of the day today? Okay. 
So uh, every month, you know, I read the proverb of the day. So today's the sixth. Yesterday was the fifth. Tomorrow will be the seventh. And it's very interesting to me every month because for three whole days, every month, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, the primary message is don't commit adultery. And going into great detail about what happens to the person that commits adultery. Uh, why do you suppose in a, in a book that has exactly uh, 20, uh, 31 chapters, uh, they would have devoted a 10% to that particular subject matter? Anybody got a clue about that? <laughs> yes, you know, I think it's interesting that uh, we modern people think the ancients didn't know too much about sex, but I think they actually might have known more about sex than we know. And uh, they certainly knew something that we sometimes forget, which is that it's not all good. <laughs> that it can be trouble. And that we can get ourselves into trouble uh, by the influence of illicit sex. Uh, they understood that uh, violence, crime, and other things can be produced by this. And so uh, we don't have a whole chapter on this in this little study. But if you just read a, proverb, a chapter of Proverbs a day, I guarantee you once a month you'll get to ponder this. Uh, by the way, for the ladies in the room, I, I think I meant, might have mentioned this, but I have three daughters. Uh, of course, none of them really like the fact that it talks about adulteress. In the day this was written, a woman really rarely left the house. They really were not supposed to be out. A woman was not supposed to be out of the house. No unmarried woman was supposed to be out of the house without an accompaniment. Uh, today, we don't live in that happy society. I think in today's world, it's just children just be concerned about members of the opposite sex who might be cheating. <laughs> it's about both sexes. So, um, now... Somebody read Proverbs 22.6. That's page 46, by the way. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, so what is the, uh, what's the message here? To parents and grandparents. I just Sometimes, and I hate to give away all sermon illustrations in one class, but uh, you know, Saint Augustine's lived a terribly desolate sexual life in particular when he was young and his mother Monica prayed for him was a Christian and prayed for him every day of her life and he only really converted a, a few weeks or months before her death so sometimes we may not always get to see when they depart from it or don't depart from it we we may not see the fruit of our prayers um, so the question here is how is my relationship with my children and what could I do to make it better? Did anybody answer that question? What does it really require to influence our children? Yeah, we... we <laughs> you know, um, one of the 
when, when our children are young, and I mean really young, we can actually influence them directly to do the right thing. But we all know somewhere around 13, that happy time passes by and we're stuck with something else. Most of us are yet in a third time of life because eventually our children grow up and they are now adults. And uh, even this kind of admonition that we used to give our children when they were teenagers, mine got plenty, I don't know if it did any good at all, um, even that admonition becomes really not the best strategy. And so we have to learn now how to m move adult children. But as I, I, I once asked my mother-in-law, when do you stop worrying about your children? And she looked at me and she said, when, they, when you die. <laughs> We're always in the, uh, in the process of helping our children, aren't we? Uh, it, how we do that changes over time. Did somebody raise their hand and want to say something? Okay. Um, did anybody read Ephesians 6, 1 through 9 and make a note about uh, any, something that stands out as important for your family? Do not exasperate your children. Yeah. I, I think that's a, there's a difference between ad admonishing your children and training your children, is there not, and exasperating your children. I, I think I had a tendency to be on the exasperating side of that uh, story. I think many men have that problem. Uh, but when we're dealing with them, we need to admonish them, but not in a way that exasperates them. In other words, really, before we have children, we should all take a course in diplomacy because it... Um, so I think the moral of the story is we will not have influence unless we have relationships. That's the message of the day. Uh, so that becoming friends with our children and having relationships with them, healthy relationships, becomes part of um, what is needed. Some, now we're going to turn to, if you will, page 48. if you will, and read Proverbs 27.10. So what's the message you think here? The importance of friendship and not forsaking our friends. You know, um, it just so happens kind of a queer thing happened in my life, but uh, my father's best friend was a man named Robert Schmidt. My mother's best friend was his wife, Pat Schmidt. My best friend in high school was their son, Mark Schmidt. Uh, and every month when I read this, I think about how important my father's friend, Bob Schmidt, was to me and what great advice he gave me over the years and that I have a duty now toward Mark uh, based upon our long friendship because I cannot desert my father's friend. Um, just, just, I was kind of thinking I wanted to have a happy marriage, and I went to see Bob Schmidt. I was home for some reason, and uh, he questioned me about my lifestyle. And he said, well, Chris, <clears throat> you rarely find a rose in a briar patch. <laughs> I felt that he was giving me a sort of a hint that perhaps if I attended church and did 
other things, I might find a good wife. But that the path I was on for finding a good wife was probably not going to result in a good wife. Uh, that was my father's friend giving me some good advice. Um, so remember I asked you for a moment ago if you would to make a list of your closest friends. So now I'm going to ask you to do an assignment this week that if you do it, I promise you, with God as my witness, you will not be sorry. I promise you. Because I've done it and you won't be sorry. Uh, it, this, the extra question is, if you have time today, ma make a list of your closest friends and what they mean to you and then write a note to at least some of them to express your thanks for their friendship. So make a list of your friends, but don't stop there. Write them a personal, handwritten note thanking them for their friendship. Now, I did this the first time we went through this. I did it the last time I went through it. I did it a few weeks ago with another group. Let me just tell you, you will be amazed at the results of those notes. Before you ever receive a reply to any of them, you will be blessed. <laughs> and when you begin to receive replies from them, you will be exceedingly blessed. Uh, so I encourage you to do that. You know, not all of our friends know how much they mean to us. We assume people know more than they may actually know. Uh, this is, guys, this is especially important for you because I guarantee your friends don't know what you, they mean to you because we don't tell anybody what they mean to us. Uh, so telling people is important. This, I think, you will find of the whole study we do, if you will just write notes to the people I picked 16, which was a big number. If you pick eight uh, people and you just write them a note, uh, I think you'll find it makes a difference to your life. Did I convince you to do it? I convince you to do it? So, one last little uh, thing. Friday's lesson. Uh, somebody please read John 15, 13 to 15. That's on page 50. So, in the end, what does Jesus call his disciples or the first church? He says, I call you my friends. I know Ron Skates is going to know the answer to this. Paul's going to know the answer to this. Can anybody think of times in Scripture when being a friend with God is mentioned? You know, in the Old Testament, Abraham is described as a friend of God. And David, in the New Testament, is described as having been a friend of God. Uh, so, uh, we have the opportunity, by faith, to be what? We can be friends of God. Just as Abraham was a friend of God, just as David was a friend of God. Uh, what are some of the attributes of a friend? How do we become a friend of God? 
Spend time together. That would be one. Our life of prayer. Know the friend through reading the Bible, which is the primary means. Going to church, listening to sermons, uh, going to Bible studies. Uh, What else? Walk in step. Yeah. Or or maybe another way of saying is stay in community with that friend. You know, don't drift away from that friend. Share communion with a friend. Share fellowship with a friend. Table fellowship. What else? Drive him to the airport. To put that one in another way, little acts of kindness and support for that friend are important. Um, So the little acts of service to God is part of our friendship, isn't it? You know, I don't think I anymore do any very big services to God, but every little service to God is part of our friendship, isn't it? Do it to the least of these. So um, we can be friends with God. God wants to draw us into a situation of friendship. That is God's objective, is that we go beyond just being his servants but make it all the way to being his friends because we have a relationship, a loving relationship with him. Which brings me to the last lesson, uh, but it is an important one. Uh, This is from 3 John 2 and 3. Uh, We'll unpack it for just a minute. Somebody can, somebody read that? You want me to? Let me, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. Now, we don't have time to read it all, but I can tell you, if you read the three letters of John, what you would find is repeatedly John uses this term beloved to refer to the churches and Christians to whom he is writing. And John, in this particular verse, uses a word that can be translated dear friend. So what should our churches be like? There, this is where we're headed with it. What should our churches be like? They should be like families. They should be like collections of friends. <laughs> Hospitable. They should be friendly. Uh, you know, uh, Ron's been the pastor of a big church. I've been the pastor of a big church. Big churches, of course, have to have some corporate organization because you can't, can't have 4,000 people operating together without some rules of the road. But that can hide from us the fact that the church of Jesus Christ is not a corporation, is it? What is it? It's, it's a family. It's an organism. And one of the hardest things about a church the size of First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio, Texas, or First Presbyterian Church of Houston, Texas, or Bay Presbyterian Church of Bay Village, Ohio, is to never forget that whatever it is we are doing as a body, we should be doing as a family of believers. And it should be characterized by love. Whatever it is we're doing, 
uh, it has to be building up that organism of the body of Christ. And if we don't do that, we're not quite doing what God calls us to do and to be. Uh, and that's hard, isn't it? Is that hard? That's hard. Uh, is that hard, Paul? It's hard. <laughs> Uh, because it requires that we pierce through organization to relationship. Can we get that? That we pierce through the organization, whether it be the women of the church or the session or uh, the, the deacons or caregivers, whatever, the choir, uh, the praise band, that we pierce through that into real, authentic Christian relationships. That's the, that's the goal God has for us. Okay? Okay.